0: Thanks. If someone were able to find some water that I could have at some stage, I that would be that. A, that's marvellous, yes. thank you. Okay. So we're getting the voice going this early in the morning. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll basically go through this PowerPoint, but I, I, I hope this will give you a sort of a broader vision of apologetics that will help you to connect it uh, to personal discipleship, to Christian discipleship, uh, living the Christian life of uh, discipleship to Jesus, as well as thinking about uh, apologetics in, in terms of uh, reaching outsiders uh, with the good news of Christ. And uh, I've called it Apologetics in 3D, because uh, 3D films are all the rage uh, at the moment and I end up with uh, a grid of, uh, three by three grid of concepts by the end, which are the sort of foundational big ideas uh, that we have in the back of our minds that give us this sort of uh, bigger picture on what we're doing that I ha- think we can draw upon in a very practical way when we actually get into the business of discipleship and apologetics. Yes, now you notice this is in English. If you didn't notice, let me tell you. And, uh, Please, please raise your hand, and ask for explanation, and you can help one another as well. If, you have, if, you, if, you, if you're not clear about a, a, a concept or term he's using, probably several others would mm. be as well. And, and stopping up for just yeah, clearing yeah. up things is, is helping us to follow. So please, yeah. please... Uh, don't be shy. Don't be shy. Try to be Norwegian. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's 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 my fault. For, it's my fault for being English, not your fault for being Norwegian. <laughs> okay, <right. laughs> ah, thank you. I see. Okay. So uh, I'm a philosopher. Philosophers like definitions uh, because definitions are about really understanding things. When you get the definition right, that so you understand what you're talking about and what you're doing. So uh, here's a sort of summary of what I'm going to say. I think that apologetics is about, it's about enabling people, helping people to be really persuaded and convinced that uh, Christian spirituality, uh, a Christ-centred way of living your life, uh, is a beautiful, good and reasonable uh, commitment to make. <laughs> and I will unpack that and go into a bit more detail on some of those concepts. But I'm saying apologetics is about enabling people to be persuaded that a Christian spirituality is a beautiful, good, uh, reasonable, true thing. We get the, the word apologetics uh, from a, a Greek term, uh, a term that's used uh, particularly famously in 1 Peter 3.15, Uh, where Peter says uh, that Christians should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. And the word uh, that we're translating in English there as as give an answer in the Greek is apologia, and it's a term that came from the, the legal system. If you're in court and your lawyer uh, stands up to defend you in court, they give their defence speech, their apologia. Um, a, a rational defence or a word back, a reasonable answer. Uh, and notice as well that al- although Paul is, is, uh, Peter here is talking about something intellectual, he immediately says, do this with gentleness and respect. He's talking about attitudes gentleness is is a word directed towards the person who's asked you the question so uh, answer in a a gentle winsome manner Uh, don't just uh, answer in a way that squashes the person and the word respect is actually a word directed towards god so out of respect for god answer people's questions about your faith uh, with gentleness uh, and in a reasonable way, we often fall in the church into these uh, these false uh, dilemmas, and apologetics gets put in a little corner. Oh, Apologetics—that's you know—that's about people who like you know intellectual people who like arguing about stuff. That's for them. It's not really for for everybody else. I think it's for everybody, biblically speaking, although it has to happen at an appropriate intellectual level for everybody. Not everybody is called to be a professional apologist or philosopher, but we are all called, 1 Peter 3.15, to give an answer uh, reasonably and with gentleness. So we should uh, get rid of any idea of uh, a false... uh, um, separation of the ideas of apologetics and evangelism. Uh, for, for example, uh, Doug Gruthouse, an American Christian philosopher, says that this artificial separation of evangelism from apologetics must end. Uh, he gives the examples that the Apostle Paul uh, serves as a model uh, in that he both he proclaimed and defended with reasons the gospel and you see that repeatedly in the book of Acts. Uh, Jesus also rationally defended his views as well as proclaiming them. Uh, so Jesus and the apostles, the first Christians, they didn't just go down the market, get up on a soapbox with a, with a loudspeaker or a megaphone or whatever, and just, you know, tell everybody, repent, the end is nigh. <laughs> Like Paul uh, uh, in Athens, uh, they would say, you know, uh, uh, repent, the end is nigh, and you can know this because God has revealed himself in Jesus and we are all witnesses of this, and he did you know, this miracle, and uh, I met him on the road to Damascus when I was going to persecute Christians, and then I actually met him and discovered that he really was alive, and it changed my life around, and so that was their... Their proclamation included a proclamation of their (coughs) reasons for following Jesus. Um, John, at the end of the Gospel of John, says, You know, Jesus did so many signs, so many miraculous indications of his status as the Messiah and the Son of God that you couldn't write them, I couldn't write them all down in this book. But these, the signs that I have talked about in the whole Gospel of John, these are given so that you might believe. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and so on. Uh, so the whole book of uh, Gospel of John is given uh, explicitly to people to say: Here are th- the reasons why you can become a follower of Jesus. Uh, think about apologetics and spiritual warfare. Have you ever thought to put those together uh, in your mind? Apologetics and spiritual warfare. Here's Paul in 2 Corinthians 10. Saying that the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Swords and spears and so on. On the contrary, our our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. What is he talking about there? He's talking about intellectual strongholds. Ideas that stand in opposition to Christian uh, faith. Because he then says, we demolish arguments. So this image of strongholds, castle, a fort, and he says then we demolish the fort, the arguments. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So from Paul's perspective, part of, not the whole of, but part of spiritual warfare is the battle of ideas that Christians fight. Also, um, rational, all about the intellect, or is it about relationships and community? You know, should we be proclaiming the gospel by doing apologetics or by inviting people to come into community with us and be our friends and get to know us and see Christ in us and all that? The answer is yes. Uh, uh, And how can you do one without the other? Nicola Veal says this, I think this is very wise. She says, people in relationships need to inquire, to learn, and build on what they know about each other. Relationships that are characterised by thoughtlessness are relationships that are going nowhere. And we, we cannot trust others, that's the basic meaning of the word faith, we cannot trust others without testing their trustworthiness. We should build relationships in a rational way and we should use rationality in a relational way. The Christian faith, the Christian trust in Jesus, is about a relationship with God and like any relationship, that requires thought. So it's a false dilemma to say rational or relational both. And finally, just to make the point that apologetics does work, You're, at least in English you often hear the phrase, you, you can't argue someone into the kingdom. Well, I know what that means. It means ultimately it's their, it's their <laughs> choice <laughs> and they can always say no at the end of the day. But in another sense, our arguments often really help people to make that choice to come into the kingdom. So um, just as a quick illustration, I received a couple of years ago this email out of the blue from a a student from Venezuela, of all places. I've never been there myself, but evidently my books have reached Venezuela. Because she says, uh, as a graduate student of philosophy, I'm an eager reader of your books and online articles, which have been instrumental in my rejection of agnosticism and naturalism, and have contributed strongly to make me a newborn Christian. And I like the way she puts that, it's contributed to making her a newborn Christian. It's, it, uh, she had to make the choice, and God's involved in this, but it, God uses uh, apologetics, and always uh, has. And you see that in the Bible, and you see that today. So, as uh, you've probably heard of this chap, Francis uh, Schaeffer, uh, he, he put it like this. He said, the purpose of apologetics is not just to win an argument or a discussion. Rather, the, the purpose is that the people with whom we're in contact, we're to help people become Christians and then live under the Lordship of Christ in the whole spectrum of life. It's a very broad, holistic thing, as my, my opening uh, definition indicates. And a British theologian, Alastair McGrath, here, Uh, says this, we can't allow Christ to reign in our hearts if he doesn't also guide our thinking. The discipleship of the mind is just as important as any other part of the process by which we grow in faith. Above all, we must must expand our vision of the gospel. Apologetics involves uh, enabling people to glimpse something of the glory and beauty of God. Apologetics engages not only the mind but also the heart. We impoverish the gospel if we neglect the impact it has on all of our God-given faculties. So we are called upon to demonstrate and to embody, to live out uh, the truth, beauty and goodness of faith. So a few false dilemmas put aside and an indication of where we're going, and let me go a little bit more in depth into this slightly more systematic laying out of this definition of apologetics that I'm advocating. It's about persuasively advocating, arguing for uh, Christian spirituality. Uh, How do we do that? Through the responsible use of rhetoric uh, and we're, we're aiming at some standards here we've got some standards by which we can judge these things uh, we're advocating that Christian spirituality is objectively really uh, beautiful, good uh, and true, reasonable uh, so we need to think a little bit more about spirituality about rhetoric and about these three values of beauty, goodness and, and truth uh, and then, then we'll be there so, spirituality, a way of living that's trying to uh, bring wholeness to a person, trying to pull, pull you together, pull, uh, uh, and you, you live this out through your, your, your thinking, your assumptions about reality, uh, your attitudes towards reality yeah. as you assume it is. And because you have certain assumptions and attitudes, you, you, you act on that basis in the world. Uh, so we get this uh, alliteration of assumptions, attitudes, actions, or you could put it, your, your head, your heart, and your hands. So spirituality is about the combination and pulling together your head and your heart and your hands. Uh, and it becomes uh, a self-reinforcing uh, loop. It's like rolling a snowball down a hill. Once you've started the snowball rolling down the hill, it, it grows and develops and gets bigger and becomes quite hard to stop. And that's why it's difficult to get people to become Christians and why it should be difficult to get people to stop being Christians uh, because all spiritualities uh, become self-reinforcing because um, I assume that there is a God And because I have an attitude that's positive towards God, I do things like going to Bible study or praying. Because I do things like praying and going to Bible study, that reinforces my, my beliefs, my assumptions about the world, and my attitude towards God, which reinforces me doing things. And so it becomes this loop. But that's the same kind of process that's happening in the life of, of a Muslim or an atheist or a Hindu. Uh, and that's why it's difficult to break people out of these loops. We shouldn't find that surprising. Now, this definition of spirituality, I think, is deeply rooted in the biblical view of human nature. Uh, I'm not the first to think of this, uh, I discovered that Jesus seems to have got there quite a long time before me and he was drawing upon the Old Testament when he answered the question from the lawyer about what's the greatest commandment. And uh, he basically says, well, it's to love God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength, all of your head, all of your heart, all of your, your hands, what you do. So a Christian spirituality means loving God with everything you are, all of your head, all your heart, your hands, and love your neighbour in Christ through Christ—a Christ-centered spirituality. An atheist like Richard Dawkins also has a spirituality, a way of life. He just puts <coughs> different content into his head, his heart, and his hands. There'll be some overlap. You know, um, we both believe in free speech human rights, for example, um, but I believe in God and he doesn't. Uh, he believes in naturalism and I don't. Uh, he thinks science is the only way to know anything. I think it's a way to know some things. Okay? So there's overlap and there's difference between different spiritualities. And now, when you have this head, heart, hand structure in mind, you will start seeing it everywhere in Scripture, because it's just a reflection of how God has made us in his image, I think. So Acts 2.3, after Peter gives the first sermon at Pentecost, uh, it says uh, Luke records, when the people heard this, so they have received these ideas in their minds, in their heads, when they heard these truth claims about Jesus and the resurrection that Peter had been proclaiming and saying, and we're witnesses too, giving them the evidence, they were cut to the heart. They had a a response in their hearts, an attitude response. And there was a positive one on this occasion. And they said to Peter and the other apostles' brothers, what shall we do? How do we respond to this practically speaking? You see. And they acted in response with head, heart, hands. Paul uh, here in Colossians chapter three says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the, the word, the, the, the message, the communication, the rational message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Uh, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Head, heart, hand. Uh, All working together, all important to one another. Uh, Just like Paul talks about the body of Christ has different members and they all need one another. Uh, We as people are made as whole people to work with our head, hearts and hands, working in, in, in community, in union, Uh, coherently together. 1 Peter 3.15 will of course reflect this. Always be prepared to give an answer, give the reason, do this. It's practical. Uh, But you're talking about your hope, doing it with gentleness, with respect. These are attitudes of our hearts. Uh, Be prepared to answer, reason our heads. So that's the uh, spirituality bit. We're advocating a Christian spirituality to people who have non-Christian spiritualities. We're doing it through the responsible use of rhetoric. Here I bring you to an ancient pagan Greek thinker called Aristotle, who defined rhetoric as the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular matter admits. So he's not talking about rhetoric in the in the sense that we think of as political rhetoric or modern advertising uh, where the advert works by we want to sell this car, how do we sell the car? Let's drape a leggy blonde lady in a bikini over the bonnet of the car, photograph it, put it in a magazine and then that will sell the car. Th- that's bad rhetoric, uh, Aristotle would say, because... Uh, it 's not really saying anything about the car it 's not bringing to your attention something that is persuasive or is attractive about the car rather it's uh, pointing your uh, your gaze to what is attractive about the lady on the bonnet of the car yeah <laughs> uh, so that's that's uh bad advertising. Good advertising a good rhetoric would be to say uh, look here 's this car.' And here's why you should find it attractive as a purchase. Uh, be that uh, you know, it's got low emissions, or it's got an electric engine, or it's uh, really fuel efficient, or it's really fast, or whatever it might be that your audience is going to find attractive about it. <laughs> uh, actually, say something that's true about what's good and beautiful about this car, and help your audience to understand that. That would be good rhetoric. So Aristotle talks about these three uh, areas or categories of persuasion, of how you can use different areas uh, of people's psyche to persuade them. Uh, I'm not going to read this whole quote. You can you read it later if you want to. But he, he gets down to these three categories of three Greek words. Uh, ethos, your character. You know, Do you look like a used car salesman? bit shifty. Or do you seem reliable? You know what you're talking about. You know, he, he's wearing a jacket, so he must be. <laughs> that that's part of my, my ethos in this situation, uh, as is the T-shirt that I'm wearing. It's like I'm down with the kids. You know, no, I'm wearing this because I'm doing a talk about uh, uh, about uh, people's belief in aliens in a symposium later today. Uh, and I thought it would be fun. But uh, you know, I'm presenting a certain image, which is uh, part of. Do I convince you or not? the 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 character of the speaker, or or, really we're talking here about goodness. Uh, uh, The second uh, characteristic he talks about is is pathos, which really relates to beauty. We have, um, you know, Tchaikovsky, the Russian composer, wrote a symphony called the 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 pathetic symphony. Why would he write a pathetic symphony? You know, that's really terrible. That symphony is pathetic. I don't know if the pun carries out of English, but no, it's not pathetic as in really terrible, but pathetique as in uh, pathos. It really moves you. It's a really moving bit of music that pulls on your heartstrings, as the English phrase goes. Uh, So so getting the audiences into a certain frame of mind, uh, getting them to to, to empathise and and sympathise with you, to, to pull on their heart, to be attracted, Uh, to something. It's really relating here to the category of beauty. Uh, And the third, logos, uh, the proof provided by the words of your speech, or relating to truth, as we'll see later. But logos is a term we should know from from biblical theology. Uh, John uses it at the beginning of his gospel, which says, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. And in English, we translate it as word. In the beginning, was the word. But this Greek term, logos, um, it kind of means the underlying rational basis of things, uh, a reasonable communication. And John takes this word from Greek philosophy and applies it to Christ, saying, Christ is the embodiment of the underlying rational principle of the universe. You Greek philosophers are right. There, there is something rational behind the world, but that rational thing that you talk about has revealed himself in Christ, in person, uh, to be a a personal revealing, relationship wanting, communicating uh, God who communicates himself to us in the person of Christ, the word, the communication of God. So if we have spirituality of our head, hearts and hands, uh, when we're communicating this or when people are, are looking at looking at us, they're receiving this information about our spirituality in these categories of, of logos and pathos and ethos. Uh, and Paul talks about these categories as well. Not in the exact words, but he even <coughs> talks about them in the exact order that Aristotle does. Uh, you know, I can't prove that he'd read Aristotle, but these were the kind of things Thoughts that were, were floating around in the culture of the ancient world at the time. Anyway, Aristotle uh, wrote well before uh, New Testament times. So Paul in Colossians 4 uh, says, When you're with unbelievers, always make good use of the time. Be pleasant. Be nice. <laughs> uh, have good ethos. And hold their interest when you speak the message. Uh, that's that's uh, pathos. Uh, be interesting, be attractive to them. Uh, choose your words carefully and be ready to give answers uh, to reply or respond to anyone who asks questions. Paul sounding very much like Peter in 1 Peter 3 15 there. Yeah. They're on the, on the same page. So, uh, although. Uh, Aristotle famously talked about these categories. St Paul talks about them in the Bible as well. And we take this back to 1 Peter 3.15. Of course, we'll see these concepts lining up uh, with one another, of the logos, the pathos, the ethos, ethos, being prepared to give answers, hope, gentleness and respect, and so on. And finally, there are are, are standards here. (laughs) Uh, Objective beauty, goodness and truth and by objective uh, an easy way I think to explain this is uh, objective things are the kind of things that we discover to be true we discover them, we don't invent them or or, uh, we discover them they don't depend upon us and what we happen to think Uh, so uh, we discover uh, that the tallest mountain in the world uh, is Everest. Uh, I might think that the tallest mountain in the world is Ben Nevis. But that's because you know I've, I'm a local from Britain. And that's like the biggest mountain we have. And I have a very limited experience of the world. And I've never heard of the Himalayas. Uh, so I think the tallest mountain in the world is Ben Nevis. That's the biggest mountain I've ever experienced. Um, but I'm just wrong about that, because there is Everest, and it is taller, okay? Uh, whatever I think about the matter, uh, the, the fact of the matter, the objective truth of the matter is. Uh, so these objective truths don't depend upon us and what we think. Um, they're things that are discovered in reality, and I'm claiming here that, that there are things that really are Whatever I think about it or not, that really are beautiful, good and true. That really are ugly and evil and false. As Saint Paul says in Philippians 4:8, uh, whatever he says. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever you happen to like, think about that. No, he doesn't. That would be a very postmodern kind of, you know. Well, whatever floats your boat, you know. And he says, brothers and sisters, whatever is true. Truth. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, is all sort of ethical, moral terms, goodness. Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. Not he's not asking, do you do you admire it or not? But is it admirable? When you admire it, are you right to admire it? If you're right to admire it, it is admirable, then that's independent of you, it's objective. Uh, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, it really is worthy of praise, think about such things. Now it might surprise you to know, uh, there was a recent survey of uh, philosophers' opinions about a whole load of different things. Uh, 41% of contemporary philosophers accept or lean towards the idea that beauty is an objective reality. And only about 35% accepted or leaned towards the idea that beauty is a subjective, a non-objective reality. So it's true to actually say to these days the, the majority of philosophers who have an opinion on the matter think that beauty is objective, um, which is kind of counterintuitive intuitive when we're told in these postmodern days people don't really believe in the, the values of of uh, well goodness, let alone beauty, uh, and they're very selective about when they believe that things are really true or not. Um, I love uh, British philosopher John Cottingham's way of putting this. Uh, he says, "Truth and beauty and goodness—they all carry with them a sense of a sense of requirement or demand. The true is that which is worthy of belief. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration." The good is that which is worthy of your choice, worthy of being chosen. Uh, And you'll soon notice that these concepts are very closely related. So, if I'm saying that rainbow is beautiful, it it is worthy of your admiration. Well, when I say is worthy of your admiration, what I'm really saying is uh, is truly, truly, it's true that that rainbow (laughs) is beautiful. Has beauty, um, and your admiration of it um, you're pointing out to your friend who hasn 't noticed it, saying, Oh look there 's a rainbow, look at that! Why do you do that Because you want to share the beauty with them yeah uh, that's a good thing for you to do, <laughs> yeah uh, so these concepts are very closely bound together, actually, hence you end up with this three by three. Apologetics in the 3D, Woo! put your 3D glasses on now. Grid, so you have your spirituality of uh, your head and your heart and your hands. These things are communicated through uh, the, 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 the traditional concepts of, of rhetoric, uh, of our logos, of pathos, of ethos, of our character, people judging our way of life, our, and also our words, our rational communication these things are judged by certain standards, standards of truth and beauty and goodness. And that's why we're, we're, as Christians, in apologetics, both for Christians and non-Christians, we're trying to really persuade people, through good rhetoric, that a Christ-centred way of living, through your head and your heart and your hands, really is objectively beautiful and good and true. That means uh, attractive and persuasive. And reasonable and all of that, but it's not narrowly intellectual, it's holistic, it's broadly uh, intellectual and about values and about living. It's, it's very practical, uh, ideas are practical, we live our, out of our ideas and our commitments. So apologetics is the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality through a responsible use of rhetoric as being objectively beautiful, good, true or reasonable. Or, to go back to where we started, apologetics is about enabling people, helping people to be persuaded, convinced that Christian spirituality is a beautiful, good and reasonable commitment. Um, uh, As the French Christian philosopher Pascal once noted, we should, we should try and make people want Christianity to be true and then show them that it is. Uh, and if we broaden that uh, a little bit, we should make people, help people to recognise that they actually want Christianity to, to uh, be true because it is attractive. If it were true, it would be a good, uh, beautiful way of life. We're not asking them to chuck their, their minds or their brains out of the door uh, just for the sake of those values that attract them to it. And truth itself should be a value that attracts them, them to it. But if you can show that, well, yeah, it's, it, it's beautiful, and, it, and it's good, and, and it is true. <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, it's pulling all of those together. It's integrating those values. Um, as you put on Christ, uh, as Paul says, um, then I think that helps give us a broader idea of what we're doing in apologetics and of, of its value, of its place within evangelism and discipleship and so on and gets rid of some of these false dilemmas that we in the church have sometimes fallen into. In terms, you know, is it evangelism or is it apologetics? Is it spiritual warfare or is it apologetics? Is it relational and about community or, you know, is it about reasons and so on? Yes. <laughs>